The latest out in the markets, joined by Akon Mlamleli, uh, Portfolio Manager at uh, 274 Investment Managers. Akona, good evening to you and welcome. Hello, Akona Mlamleli. Can you hear me? Yes, yes, clearly. Unjani? No, I'm Dipilin Ngos. How was your Easter? I certainly hope... Uh, you know, you managed to uh, yeah, head out to church if indeed uh, uh, you do go to church. Jay pickled fish and husband, no wine donors, and just those two are on Easter. So, I hope it was yes. good. Yes, yeah. So, Friday, I was able to go listen to Amabas Kank. Okay. So, and, and also travel um, home to the Eastern Cape for a short period of time. But, yeah, it's good. Um, Short but good. Awesome, awesome. That was great. And uh, I heard, I mean, from people uh, who are saying that there's another. Uh, words outside of the church uh, and I'm not going to get into I guess what, what that was but uh, yeah and uh, glad to uh, have you safely back Akwana and uh, yeah joining us once again to take a look at the latest out in the markets and I want us to maybe start off with the Spur Corporation now these are the guys who uh, operate Spur Steak Ranches I think Hassa Grill uh, they also um, uh, I think are involved in Rockamamas as well uh, the Spur Corporation and uh, yeah they're now facing 183 million rand damages claim and uh, intellectual claim here uh, from a food processor GPS Foods. And uh, this after, I guess, somebody must have communicated with GPS Foods that um, uh, there would be a joint venture to create ribs or, uh, mm. I guess, uh, to uh, process ribs, uh, which are a critical input into the, uh, many of the operations in the Spur uh, group. Uh, talk to me about what happened here and maybe, I guess, how a lot of that context interfaces uh, with the 2021 passing of a uh, long-time MD and CEO, Pierre Fantonda. Yeah, so as you mentioned, um, I also Spur Group um, Corporation, um, which has franchises such as Spur and, as you mentioned, Rocco Marmots, um, is facing a multi-million rand damages claim from um, a global uh, manufacturing business called JPS Food Group, um, which had currently um, has a subsidiary um, within South Africa. Um, however, this particular um, group, particularly the African division, um, has summoned for, um, for allegedly damages of approximately 183.3 million, um, related to an establishment of a so-called jail, jail, um, joint venture um, for rib supply and processing facility um, within the, um, the, the Cape Town factory. Um, so GPS particularly alleges that there was an oral agreement which was concluded between JPS and Spur Group back in 2017, um, in terms of which the parties uh, were to establish a, J- um, a JV um, to acquire and develop and manufacture um, the rib processing facility. Um, however, um, Spur has come out saying that there was no formal written agreement um, that was executed between JPS and Spur Corporation, and that's why obviously um, JPS um, has taken this particular case to the courts, um, particularly for the damages with regards to the capital that is spent and losses and, and obviously the um, losses particularly in the last five years uh, because unfortunately it has also um, gone um, and under particularly because it is suffering particularly from the losses and incurred particularly with this project. Um, so this is the case that has come through and come to the courts um, which um, still has unfortunately denied these allegations. Um, however, we do wait in terms of how this plays out in the courts um, with regards to um, the, the future, particularly pertaining to this, if there was a, a formal agreement with regards to the oral agreement in which JPS um, stays the work. Why is Spur reluctant to disclose whether they currently do any business with GPS or not? 
And so I think it's a, it's a bit difficult one because I think for GPS, I think they were said to have had a contract particularly with, with a group or for corporations. Um, so then um, they're obviously putting out this particular um, alleged damages um, with regards to 183 million um, because it was indicated that they could only work with the four corporation um, but were not able to work with other franchise outlets. Um, so I think this is the one that has affected particularly this group. Um, but also, as you reported, um, that um, the MD um, Fantonda, who was MD and CEO of Spur Group um, for the past 24 years, retired in December um, and obviously um, succumbed to some of the, the injuries pertaining to him. So I think this one is, is, is quite a difficult one in terms of how they navigate and how, what the court finds. And particularly with regards to this um, agreement, if there was one. Akwan, am I hearing you correctly when you're suggesting there that um, some of these agreements that there would be between these food services businesses and fast food retailers would be subject to exclusivity agreements? So, you know, if I work with you, you can, and you supply me with ribs through our joint venture, you can only supply me, only me and nobody else. Yeah, so from the communication that has come out, particularly for the JTS Food Group SA, um, so if you go to the website, they particularly were producing high-quality cooked meat and poultry products. Um, and if you go to the website, you obviously some, see some of the, the poultry and meat offering that, that they did offer some of these um, particular um, service providers. Um, so it, it, it was um, that particular agreement that took place between um, the Spurs Corporation and this particular JPS Food Group. And uh, I guess they're saying they're also probably not going to be listing this as uh, something in their books. Um, quite interested in why. Yeah, so um, I think they're currently just waiting for the legal proceedings to take, um, to obviously um, unfold and to obviously hear how the court um, decides pertaining to this um, case. Um, if, unfortunately, they do lose this case, uh, unfortunately, they will have to put it into, into, into their books. Um, but currently, they still at the stage um, with the legal proceedings being at its infancy. Um, they don't see it. Um, then adding it currently to their books and uh, currency. Yeah. Then let's shift our attention to China, Akona. And uh, we know uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is still very much a reality in that part of the world. Uh, and uh, also, I guess, how China has responded to successive waves of this virus um, through very strict lockdowns, you know, massive move- restrictions on mobility and movement, uh, even more severe than what we might have seen here during the hard lockdown. Uh, they're still using that approach, and it's having a massive impact on many companies who produce uh, parts uh, and components in the automotive sector. Um, and uh, it seems now, in order, I guess, to try and avoid all of these disruptions, using what many in the world of sport would be calling uh, a bubble. Um, so keeping your workers in the same place, close to where they work, so that there isn't, mm-hmm. I guess, any uh, likelihood of infection if they were to go home or if they were to use public transport and anything of that sort. Yeah, so they have applied some stringent um, lockdown regime. So um, the lockdown in Shanghai, which is China's financial capital, um, began in late March um, of this year, um, where China... Um, and obviously some of the manufacturers, um, car and auto part factories in China, um, were, had to obviously shut down for almost a month long. Um, but however, in particular with regards to the story, um, they have indicated um, the likes of BMW and Bosch, indicating that they're currently um, getting underway in terms of reopening um, with the easing of some of the provinces in terms of the restrictions. Um, however, with regards to the severe lockdowns, particularly in the manufacturing sector, in places such as Shenzhen and Yiling, um, which obviously affected uh, manufacturing companies such as B 
BMW and Bosch, um, they did indicate that it will take a while to get back, and also um, they are gradually getting back. So, for, for example, Bosch and BMW indicated on Monday that they, they're gradually resuming production um, at some of their plants. Um, and also you indicated the story which um, a, a two factories, particularly run by Bosch, um, where staff are closed loop operations and aren't permitted to leave premises until further notice um, to obviously limit a possible exposure um, to the virus. Um, and also to, just to get the economy going. Um, mm. I know if, if, you, if, if you recall, yesterday we got um, some of the data particularly to China and we did get the economy has, particularly in the first quarter, um, GDP rose by 4.8%. Um, I think when the lockdowns and the severe lockdowns were communicated to the market early in March, um, we, we, we noted that uh, Shanghai's lockdown um, particularly were concerns over Chinese economic outlook and also the remainder for this economic growth um, in 2022. Um, however, with the data that we saw coming out yesterday, we saw Chinese um, economy grow quite significantly and also faster than expected. Um, and also that was just to be cautioned that these numbers don't take the full extent um, of the severe lockdowns because, as I indicated, the severe lockdown only took place um, towards the tail end um, of March 2021, 2022. Sorry. Um, however, when we do see the G2 um, numbers for 2022, um, we would like to see how this impacted for this period, the month-long um, shutdown. And, of course, then, I guess the, the, there's another question, which is around... Um, how much the automotive sector can take. I mean, we also saw um, some disruptions to production uh, due to a shortage of, uh, you know, uh, microchips, semiconductors, and now uh, seemingly this particular challenge of uh, lockdowns uh, being eased somewhat. Uh, uh, What impact, I guess, will global supply chain challenges uh, have, even if some of the factories uh, reopen production uh, in many parts of northeastern China? Yeah, so I think we spoke about this um, a, a few months back when we were all coming into 2022 and we saw some of the supply chain restrictions that took place last year um, ease um, significantly. Um, however, with the news of the lockdown, the severe lockdowns that did take place in Shanghai, um, this will um, provide some, uh, a little bit of delay um, in some of the production processes, particularly to companies um, such as Tesla and other um, car manufacturing um, operations. Um, however, we do, we do um, obviously just need to monitor these situations. Um, however, it won't get back to um, how we anticipated coming into the year. Um, so it will be, become a, a bit slower um, for companies such as Tesla, which I mentioned, and also the likes of Apple, um, which are very much dependent mm. um, on the, the manufacturing process with regards to the products that they get um, from Shanghai. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and just, I guess, in general, I mean, uh, our discussion is focused on the automotive sector. Um, but we do know in many ways, you know, China is the place where much of what we use in the world is made, anything from the clothes right through to, uh, you know, uh, uh, materials and components that go into, you know, uh, buildings and all manner of other things. What impact, I guess, has uh, this form of response had um, to many uh, factories that I guess might be affected by the stop-start cycle and nature of uh, what's happening here? Because it does seem, I mean, you sort of uh, on and the production is on for a few weeks or so and then, you know, a next wave or a next, um, what do they call it, subspecies of a, you know, a, a variant of uh, this virus and then there's another hard lockdown again. Yeah, so I think it particularly does impact um, various sectors. Um, I think when the numbers came out yesterday with regards to the Chinese numbers, um, they did indi- um, indicate that um, 
divisions or sectors um, related to the consumer activities um, pertaining to lockdown did have an effect in terms of the numbers that came out. Um, so some of the data that came out yesterday, um, we saw a contraction in consumer activity, um, but also it will obviously impact and also affect the ripple effect in terms of the other um, pipeline and also the value chain um, in which it's very much dependent um, in terms of what, uh, what they get from this region. And then, Aniyucho Akonba, you know, there are people who are putting up posts on TikTok for anything close to 70,000 right through to 120,000, talking about the same things you and I are talking about here. Yeah, so this is a quite an interesting one, um, indicating that um, influencers, um, but influencers of a different regime, particularly in the financial mm. services sector, um, are earning big bucks. Um, and I think with regards to this particular story, I just want to obviously um, explain to our listeners what a robo-advisor actually is. Yeah, what is um, that? Because yeah. It, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so a robo-advisor particularly is an online um, investment, pa- investment platform um, which um, employs software um, algorithms mm. to create um, and also manage um, a number of investment portfolios um, which large asset managers um, make use of. So some large asset managers um, hire financial professionals typically to design the investment strategies um, employed um, by robo-advisors. And also the robo-advisor, which is obviously the software, and um, this does the day-to-day management um, of the, the portfolio. And you may be asking, how does it actually work? So users particularly are assigned a certain questionnaire just to gauge um, the user's age, income, um, investment goals, and risk tolerance. And this particular robo-advisor builds a particular portfolio, diversified portfolio, taking into account the profile of the user um, and also selects um, a number of investment products within the large asset management from all the financial advising firms that makes use of this particular particular service. So uh, a U.S. financial advisory firm um, known as Betterment, um, which has a platform with a robo advisor aimed at attracting new investors, um, was quite propelled by about 10,000 signups in one particular day. And upon investigation, they obviously found that a TikToker and full-time influencer had been posting a number of videos describing how to retire money using their platform. Um, so we've seen a number of these particular influencers and also the finance industry making use of these um, influencers in order just to reach a demographic, particularly the Gen X and also the millennials, um, who large asset managers or even financial services providers um, struggle to obviously reach in terms of the retail product offering. So this particular influencer earned in excess of about $4.5 million to about $4,500 to $8,000 per post. Um, and it's obviously a growing phenomenon, particularly in the U.S. Mm. Um, and also globally. So it, it is quite interesting that... Uh, financial advising firms and also asset management firms um, are finding different ways to obviously attract um, a different investment profile, particularly in the young generations. Um, we saw last month um, Goldman Sachs um, announced an investment, particularly with regards to buying up a Chicago-based um, web advisory called Next Capital. Mm. Um, they obviously opted for, rather than investing in their own, just buying out um, a, a dedicated robot advisor who will obviously uh, tap into the retail product offering, but also tap into workplace pensioners, um, which they're obviously trying to get.
Yeah. I mean, I guess, and I like the, the point you make there towards the end, that as many of these, you know, uh, um, funds or, you know, uh, asset managers and many plays sort of prioritize more the retail channels of getting the public to invest uh, uh, in many of their funds, that uh, this becomes an approach. Uh, I mean, there was also, I guess, a discussion of one person who had used um, popular culture and, uh, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, uh, what we might see in celebrity culture as a means to explain financial concepts and to onboard and introduce people into the world of investment. Are we seeing anything similar here in South Africa? And if so, I guess, what, what are some of the risks associated with it? Yeah, so I think when RoboAdvisory started um, globally, um, I think some of the research and some of the papers and articles um, indicated that there was a small proportion of investors um, typically um, managing or making use of the digital um, services. Um, however, the robots were mostly highest um, amongst millennials and Gen X households. Um, when you obviously fast forward to obviously our demographic in South Africa, there has been a um, a number of um, asset management firms that have adopted um, web advisors, um, such as the likes of Signia, um, in, uh, in eight, um, those particular firms make use of, um, for, particularly for the retail platform, mm. um, which is obviously a growing um, platform, particularly in the South African landscape, um, allowing retailers just to take out the middleman, which is always known to be the traditional financial advisor. Um, so uh, uh, some of the advantages, um, a lot of people who made use of this particular robo-advisor have indicated the low cost and also taking the emotion out of investment decisions. Um, so previously, your financial advisors would be the one that you'd sought or looked for advice for in terms of where to invest and what to invest. So this particular platform does take out that emotion um, in terms of that takes place in terms of volatility when markets um, are quite volatile, which we've seen in the last few banks, um, that, that particular platform does take up that emotion for some of the investors, and also the efficiency. Um, mm. So it, it's very much quick, and, and a lot of companies that have adopted those advisors um, have a number of apps and obviously make that user-friendly, and that is obviously more appealing particularly to millennials and Gen X households um, who are very much on their phones, and their lives are particularly on their phones. And also, I mean, I guess, you know, costs as well, right? I mean, many, many complaints have been made about how costly uh, you know, the uh, fund management uh, and uh, other active uh, decisions made by those uh, who get very, very fat chunks of people's money uh, is. And so in a sense, you know, if you're getting somebody to prime and influence the person on the other end and uh, a seamless and a convenient way for them to invest, uh, it probably might mean a lower cost base for the investor than, than ordinarily would be the case. 100%, 100%. Low cost is a very much a driver, a big driver of this. Um, we've seen um, a lot, particularly in the space, um, financial advisors taking exorbitant fees and therefore eating into the returns um, of pensioners or investors. Um, so this particular platform does, does, assist with, does assist with that with regards to, to providing low cost. And then, uh, before I let you go, uh, Zolani Matthews. Uh, now, we would covered this story towards the end of last year when uh, I guess it seems the chips had, had been falling. Uh, for uh, Mr. Matthews here. And uh, it seems a private arbitration hearing has now ordered that uh, the suspended passenger rail agency CEO, Zolani Matthews, be reinstated. And uh, his uh, contract had been terminated uh, because uh, he, I guess, um, 
he wasn't, uh, uh, issued with a clearance by the state security agency. Uh, and uh, the uh, reason for this had been, I guess, the suggestion uh, uh, that he didn't disclose his dual citizenship. What does this mean for Prasa? And I guess, um, you know, are we going to see, as we often do with these things, a golden handshake? Because, Zautua, mm-hmm. you know, the relationship between Mr. Matthews and the board has irretrievably broken down. And uh, therefore, we need to give him a chunk of money and say adios. Yeah, so those are the options. So, um, Mr. Matthews did obviously take it to the labor court, which was subs- um, subsequently referred to the CCMA. Mm. And the CCMA has obviously um, concluded that uh, Mr. Matthews should be reinstated. Um, but as you're obviously posing these questions, um, that is one of the options of a golden handshake. Um, imagine going back to your employer who has obviously fired you um, for, the many, for the various reasons that they indicated. Um, so it has um, allowed Mr. Matthews to return to his office. Um, however, just to note that the spokesperson of Prasa did indicate that the Prasa board has received a judgment and is obviously considering the context of the ruling. So um, the option that you did highlight at the beginning, um, Ayabonga, um, with the golden handshake, um, just, just moving on with, uh, with themselves and just finding a different leader mm. is one of the options that could take place. Um, but as you know, um, the railway agency, Parker particularly, has gone through a number of challenges. Um, we've spoken about it particularly in the show, the infrastructure, and last month, um, you'll recall, Parker appeared before Parliament's um, mm. finance watchdog, Scopa, um, over its 2020-2021 annual report and financial statements, and the regular expenditure that um, came from that, and also some of the news that um, we received in March where we were communicated to the market that there were about 3,000 ghost employees. Um, so we do wait on that investigation. But I think, um, as I've continuously reiterated, when it comes to the partner and many of our SOEs, um, we just do need stability, stability in the leadership um, so that the work that is needed to be done um, can be done. So commuters mm. and us working class citizens um, can make use of the service, um, which um, is very much beneficial to our economy. Yeah. And I guess, you know, I think you're right. I mean, in many ways, this is not just about Zolani Matthews, but it's um, symptomatic and I guess indicative of uh, something much deeper, a challenge much more fundamental in the passenger rail agency. I mean, we've seen the fruitless, irregular and wasteful expenditure. We've seen the inability to spend, uh, you know, on uh, massive capital budgets here uh, to uh, refurbish, modernize and... Um, you know, renew the uh, passenger rail agency. And then also, I guess, uh, we've also seen uh, the uh, many security challenges that not only confront Mm. the passenger rail agency, but even Transnet as a freight operator. Um, I mean, whoever comes into this job, and even if we assume, uh, just for illustrative purposes, that Zolani Matthews will go back to his job, um, I sit here and wonder what is in that inbox, and more importantly, I guess, how long it takes uh, to turn around the parlous state of affairs out at Prasa? Yeah, so it needs uh, management and also leadership um, that sees the vision and goal and also just wants um, the whole structure and the whole operation to actually work and work for the ordinary South Africans um, that does commute. Um, so, um, yes, um, if he does come back, um, his, he, he was obviously only on his job for less than about 12 or 14 months. Um, so it, it is a, a very much a long-term journey, particularly with regards to Parsa, mm. um, and obviously just getting back, um, and also the infrastructure, which is, as you indicated, service providers, um, 
the, the, the challenge that the department, particular transport department, has had in terms of um, the tenders, the RFPs that has taken so long, um, particularly in the security space, um, for, for, for it to just get those basic service providers um, on with regards to such places such as park station and also other security places mm. because we know security is very much a big challenge because we see the rampant um, challenges with regards to railways and theft um, of a number of um, infrastructure, um, particularly to this um, operation. Very interesting stat, uh, Akwana, just as I let you go on this Prasa issue. Uh, and um, it's attributed, uh, let me start off with the source of it, uh, so that if indeed, it's the Land Transport Survey, which uh, was published a few days ago, well, early on today, it seems, yeah. Um, and in 2008, there were nearly 50,000 passenger journeys in the rail sector. Right, and this could be anything local commute, right mm-hmm. through to long distance shosholoza mail type of, you know, rail experiences. By 2020, that number had stood at less than 10,000. Mm-hmm. These are the number of just passenger journeys. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess it speaks volumes. Uh, just in that period, probably what, 12 year, 12 year, 13 year period? 50,000 mm-hmm. down to less than 10,000 and. Uh, at some stage in 2020, close to zero, because we also do know that um, large parts of the passenger rail uh, and network were, um, yeah, out of operation. So uh, a sad state of affairs as well. And uh, but I guess in many ways, this tussle there at the top, uh, a sign of the times at the passenger rail agency. Yeah. So many commuters, um, I think, as I spoke to you, safety is very much important. Um, many people who obviously deliver and deliver goods, making use of the the, the freight, part, for mm. example, and their services, um, want safety and make sure that their goods will get to where it's intended to get. Um, so it's very much important that um, the top um, be fixed enormously quickly, um, but also that the, if this particular um, communication and long-term vision and destruction filters down mm. um, to the person selling tickets. Um, to a, a bus commuter, um, a park station, and many other operators uh, around South Africa. Because we've also seen in Cape Town, they've had very much a lot of challenges um, with regards to um, a lot of the gangs they have just mm. taken over the trains and also just some of the, the challenges, the operation challenges um, sure. that have obviously encountered this particular operation. Akram Lamlele, always a pleasure catching up with you, and uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Aya.